if you've come to Sunday school a lot or have the opportunity for that, you'll hear me oftentimes say, read the Bible. Just read it. I don't care if you don't understand it. It's good for your soul. Read it. Um, and um, as I was doing that, um, eating my own or taking my own medicine um, this year, I was reading through the book of Isaiah, and that's where this message came from. So I saw this truth um, as I was reading through, and, um, and I just wanted to point that out for the simple fact that the encouragement of the spiritual discipline of just reading the Bible through um, will bless your soul. It will bless your soul. Um, and, and John needed someone to fill in, um, and I had just read through this passage, and I thought it fit perfectly with where the theme he wanted to go of having the character traits of God. And so today, we're going to look at our jealous God, our jealous God. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, I come to you and I simply ask that you be with us now. Help us to know your truth. Um, God, calm my spirit. Help me to speak today um, your words. And I pray that you would help those that hear today to understand your words. And may you challenge us in our lives where we need to be challenged. And may we really appreciate it at the end of this hour of the truth that you are a jealous God that loves us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I have one goal today, and you've probably already picked up on it, and that is to convince you that God is jealous for your soul and that that is a good thing. And I also am going to try not to drink too much water. See, I always get parched when I come up here. This is why I could never play the trumpet in front of people. But I want to convince you of that goal today, even through my dry mouth problems. Um, the Ten Commandments tells us, um, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In James chapter 4, verse 5, God tells us that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In fact, it's over 15 times in the Bible that God is referred to as a jealous God. But before we get too much into that, I do want to ask the question, and that is, what does this mean? What does the word jealous mean here? Because in this audience that I'm speaking to this morning, there's a good chance that that word is a very negative connotation to you. When we hear the word jealous, one of the first things we, that comes to mind maybe perhaps is the jealous boyfriend or the jealous girlfriend, right? Something that does not necessarily ponder or enable us to think about positive thoughts. Or perhaps it was that um, sister of yours or that brother of yours that came up and clocked you in the face really, really hard because you had the ice cream that they didn't have and they were jealous to get that ice cream from you. So this word generally to the average American English-speaking person has a negative connotation. And in fact, even in the dictionary, when we look at the primary definition of it, it says it is a feeling or showing of envy of someone or their achievements and advantages. And that clearly can't refer to our God. But the secondary definition in the dictionary is that it is the definition of somebody who is fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions. And it's this latter definition that we should think of when we hear and see God described of as a jealous God. He is jealous of us. He is jealous of our soul. 
And so we see jealousy oftentimes as a bad word, but when used of God, I hope to persuade you today that it is a character trait of God and that it is a good thing, that someone can be jealous of another and that they can be protective, fiercely protective of the rights that they have over that person. And so to continue using as an illustration, it's possible, you know, as the way we see this, it's possible for somebody to be fiercely jealous over their rights that the U.S. Constitution provides them. And they may have the courage and the financial um, ability to be able to take the United States government to court to protect that right. That's being jealous of their right. My only encouragement to you is to recognize that the Bible does not give you the same political rights as the U.S. Constitution does. That's for free, not even in my notes. I'm off script already. So, but let's take, for example, a married couple. A married couple, in a very righteous way, can be jealous for each other. See, when we get married, um, we commit before God to remain faithful to that person for the duration of our life. Till death do we part, we say. And richer for richer for poor, in sickness and in health. Now you'd be hard pressed, I think, to make the, um, the make the case that infidelity then, after a commitment like that, is a good thing for a marriage, and it is something that either spouse would say, "I'm okay with happening." In fact, it would be a horrible thing. And so, wanting to remain pure, this married couple they may jealously pursue their purity. They may jealously pursue the purity of each other. They may take specific steps of transparency, like, for example, letting their spouse see on their phone where they're at at all times. They may make a step in their life to simply avoid ever being in private with a member of the opposite sex. They, they may, alone that is. They may take steps, for example, to never allow themselves to have conversations with people online that are, say, former friends that could cause them to wander away from their spouse. So again, you'd be hard-pressed to make an argument that this infidelity would be good for their marriage. And so they are jealous for their purity. They're jealous for each other. And this jealousy protects their rights of exclusivity in this marriage relationship. Their jealousy actually protects the person and the benefits that are provided to them by being jealous for their purity. So turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to be working through two chapters of Isaiah to see how God, God, God's jealousy for his people plays out over a discussion about idols. And I'm going to walk through three primary points with you this morning. Three primary points. The first is that there is a foolishness of following idols, a foolishness of idols. The second is that the destructive modern idols that we serve. I want to have a conversation about how there are modern idols that we serve and how they help us to serve false gods, and they're in our lives. The third, then, is how our jealous God wants us to serve him and him alone, and that is a good thing for you. That is a good thing for you. So read with me now, Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to read from starting in verse 6 to verse 20. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. 
Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man and with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it. He roasts it and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. No, they do not know, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Tim Keller said, The human heart is nothing but an idol factory. The human heart is nothing but an idol factory. And the sobering matter is, is that God tells us in verse 9 of this chapter that all who fashion idols are nothing. Are nothing. They can't see that these idols are going to put them to shame. They can't see how ludicrous it is to fashion a God that cannot save and is profitable for nothing. And what this chapter begins to show us is that there are three things about idols. There are three things about idols that make it foolish to follow after them. The first is that idols are made by confused men. Idols are made by confused men. The second is that idols are powerless. And the third is that idols displace God. All right, you ready for this? I need you to listen. I'm going to give you two choices. Two choices. You got to decide quickly. The results of your decision are going to have an incredible impact on the rest of your life in the most profound way that you can think. Are you ready? Choice number one. You get to serve an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present God who loves you to the point of sending his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins 
He rose again three days later to be able to provide his righteousness for you in order that you may spend an eternity in joy, having overcome and having been delivered from the pain and sorrow of your sin. It's choice number one. Choice number two is you get to serve Chuck. <laughs> Chuck is a beautiful eagle here. And it might be a little hard to see. Hopefully you can see it on the camera here. But this is an actually pretty impressive wood carving. I stole it from somebody's house. Sorry about that. Forgive me, Lord. It's my mom. She knew. My mom loves eagles. But this is impressive. It's this little rocky outcropping that is carved into this. I mean, if you could see the feathers, they're like all intricately carved here. You can actually see the little veins of the feathers. I mean, this, the detail is beautiful. The, the talons here, don't want those clawing into my back. This beak here is a nice little sharp edge. The eyes have just such exquisite detail. As a fellow woodworker, I have some mad respect for who created this. Best thing I've ever carved is a bunch of letters. I don't know how to do this. But this is Chuck. Now, before you dismiss him too easily, you need to know that your neighbor worships Chuck. And your neighbor is going to let you know, and he's going to advocate pretty strongly that, that he can make your life pretty, pretty good. You'll have the most best wealth that you could ever imagine. You'll have the most awesome spouse, the best behaved kids. You're going to drive the best cars, the nicest house. And before you dismiss Chuck too quickly, when he wants popcorn, he just breathes on Nebraska. I love a Chuck Norris joke. Now the next time it's hot in Nebraska, you're all going to be like, Chuck, I got a microwave. Can you knock it off, please? But that's Chuck. That's choice number two. All right, now I know this is an absurd example, especially that I'm preaching to a sanctified crowd of people who know that God is the only God. But so are worshiping idols. It's absurd. Idols are made by men. It tells us there in verse 12 of that passage we read. And they get tired and exhausted when they make these idols. That was a lot of work, I promise. As a fellow woodworker, again, I mean, I, I've never done anything like that, but one of the things I have to do because I'm a hobbyist woodworker and I can't afford all of the big tools that cost tens of thousands of dollars is a lot of times I have to do things by hand. And when I have a wide board, my tools are too small in order to process and make that wide board and get it into the piece of furniture that I want. So I have to get my hand planes out. And I have to sight down this board and I have to find how it's twisted and I have to find how it's bowed and I have to find how it's cupped because that's what a piece of wood does when it comes out of the tree after the lumber mill. And I have to then anchor it down to my workbench and I have to get my hand planes out. I have to sharpen the blades. And then I have to sit there and I have to walk across the length of this board with this hand plane to take off all of the high spots. I have to continually get down in sight to see if it's flat yet and where it's not flat. And I mark it and then I take the hand plane back out and I do that again. And every 10 minutes or so I have to stop and I have to sharpen the blade again. And then when I get all done and it's nice and flat on the bottom, I gotta turn it around and I gotta do it again until it's perfectly parallel with the bottom, and I have now a nice square board. But you thought it ends there. It doesn't. I gotta let it sit out for a couple days because it's going to twist and it's gonna warp now that it's had a little bit of wood taken off of it. I gotta do it all over again in a couple of days. That's why they invented power tools, by the way. But when I'm done doing all that work, I'm exhausted. 
It's nothing but a bunch of sawdust. I look like a hot mess. I'm up to my knees in shavings that have fallen off of that board. And it's taken me four or eight hours to get through this work. And so that's how absurd this is, is what the Isaiah is telling us. We are making something from creation and worshiping it rather than worshiping the creator as he intended. And ultimately, this idol is about man molding God to be who he wants God to be. He's trying to create a God within an image that suits him. And this is an exhausting task because it's a futile task. Chuck is nothing but a fancy block of wood that was made by an exhausted craftsman. And see, we want to control our lives, and we labor to exhaustion to find that control. But in the end, we still have no control, and we still find ourselves in the position of having to submit to the almighty God of the universe. So next, I want to show you how powerless these idols are. I'd kick this over, but mom would not be happy. But there's Chuck. He's lying on the ground if you can't see over there. He can't get up. In fact, it reminds me of the, the passage when um, the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and has been taken over to the Philistines and the god Dagon keeps falling over every night. And then they come back in, they set him back up, and then the next day they come in and he's fallen over again. And they finally get so frustrated with their god falling over and not being able to lift him up. What do they do? Get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. Go give it back to the Israelites. We don't want this here anymore. That is the powerless God that we oftentimes choose to serve. And just like in verse 14 through 17 of this chapter, we see that Chuck, the artist that made Chuck, had to go plant a tree. He then had to cut that tree down. He, had to, he used half of the tree to warm himself by a fire. He then took the coals and he baked some bread and he, made some, he roasted his meat over it. And then he takes the other half of the tree and he makes Chuck. That just doesn't even make sense especially when he bows down and he asks it for deliverance. And we think these idols have power. It was the rain from God that fell on the soil. It was the soil itself, the natural processes that God created that caused that tree to grow. It was God that created fire. It was God that created the animal that he ate and cooked over that fire. And when we worship idols that we create ourselves, we testify that there is nothing beyond us that can save us. How's that good for you? How's that good for us? It reduces us to nothing but flesh and bone with a meaningless life, and we become nothing, as it says in verse 9. God is jealous for us to understand that we have a soul, that he wants us to worship him alone, that he wants us to trust in him alone, that he wants us to enjoy the freedom and the grace that he alone provides. Yet we choose idols to worship the gods of money, success, pleasure, acceptance, intellect, power. And all of these things, they can be taken away in a flash. They have no power to sustain us. They have no power to save us from calamity or war. They have no power to give us lasting joy. They are powerless. They are worthless. And finally, these idols displace God. And this is the worst part of it all. They displace God. Read verses 6 through 8 with me again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. 
Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid, for have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is what God wants us to understand. There is no other God. There is no other God who's going to deliver us, who will provide for us, who will redeem us. And who better to place our trust in? You look at verse 24 later in that chapter. He says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God is the one who created the universe, the earth. Now, Isaiah actually goes into an extended conversation throughout all of the chapters that are in the 40s of Isaiah. There, It's a great passage to just sit down and read. But in verse chapter 45, verse 18, he says, for, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth, earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The supreme power in the universe is not within the universe itself. That's not even logically possible. And so therefore, it cannot be represented by any of the forms of the universe. God is the one with wisdom. In verse 25 in chapter 44, he frustrates the signs of liars and he makes fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Verse 19 of chapter 45, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In chapter 46, verse 9, he says, for I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there is none like me. God is the one with wisdom. We have to understand this about idol worship. We have rested all of our destiny on something that is not God. It cannot satisfy us. It cannot protect us. It cannot grant us strength. It is not dependable. It will betray us. Idols are not the Holy One. They are unholy. An abomination it is to trust in idols. What Aaron did when he came out, of, when he made that golden calf, and he speaks to the nation of Israel, and he says, Behold, the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. What a horrible, horrible moment in the nation of Israel. Because what Aaron did at that moment was he ascribed all of the glory, all of the majesty, all of the strength, all of the deliverance that had just been done by God, by Jehovah, to these Egyptian gods. Give all of the credit to something that did not exist, something that was crafted by the hands of man. Now you may be thinking, how silly it is to worship an idol of stone, wood, silver, gold. I don't do that, Aaron. Well, hold on. Let's have a conversation about that. See, Israel lived among the pagans that worshiped these idols, and things were going swimmingly for them. And they were often going really bad for the Israelites. That's because they weren't obeying their God. And he told them that that was exactly what was going to occur. But imagine what it would be like if you saw someone living next door, living a comfortable life, always eating the best food, had the perfect family, the best cars, the nicest house, the greenest lawn, 
the 80-inch OLED TV or whatever they are these days, I haven't kept up with it, they've got a signed Husker football with Tom Osborne's signature on it right next to the TV on the mantle. And you sit down, and some of you don't care about that, I know. I, I get it, I understand. I live in Nebraska, I don't get it either. But I'm sorry, I just lost 75% of the crowd. But back to the notes. Um, you're looking at that, and you say, hey, what, what's the secret to your success, Bob? Right, what, Jim, what, what do you got going on here? How is, this, how is this awesome for you? And they say, look, man, all you got to do, all you got to do, worship Baal. Worship Baal. He'll take care of things for you, man. That's, that's what I do. Worship Baal. How tempting that would be. In fact, take a look. If you have a moment, flip over. What do you do? You're right here with me. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 16. Look at what, look at what they say a little bit later in the history of Israel. This is, this is, this is about 100 some years later, but um, they, they didn't get the lesson from Isaiah. Jeremiah 44, 16, he says, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. That just kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Well, we have the benefit of hindsight. But I also submit to you what I'm trying to, 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 trying to help encourage us to explore in our own human heart is that we do very much the same thing with the idols of our day. Because here's what Israel heard again. Hey, all I got to do is worship the cult prostitutes. My, my fields, are, they're doing great. Baal's protected my family. Just come down to the temple. Just come down to the temple. All will be well for you. And all we have to do at this point is ask ourselves, how do we respond when we're hungry? How do we respond when we're fearful and scared? How do we respond when we're overcome with desire? What is it that we will give up? I've learned over the years that my heart is nothing but an idol factory. I agree a whole 100% with Tim Keller. When I was younger, I pursued career success. And then when I finally forsake that, God work became meaningless to me. And I found no joy in it. And now God is working in my heart to help me understand that in my work, I can serve others and have great joy in that, that I can serve the Lord and not serve man and have great joy in that. I oftentimes question if my pursuit and my desire for financial independence is related to my worship of leisure and security, even though I will oftentimes think about it in the light of, well, I'll have more time to devote to ministry. Is my desire to dominate my neighbors in the, having the best lawn. Is that just a friendly competition of mine? Is that just something that this desk warrior needs to be able to just experience the outdoors every now and then? I oftentimes think it's not, especially as I connive and try to think of ways to get even with that serial offender that keeps walking by my house, lets his dog do his business in my front yard and doesn't pick it up. That one's tough for me. I've had some victory recently in my battle against gluttony but I know that I'm still raging in my desire to eat more than I should because of my worship of pleasure. 
And if I'm not filling the need for pleasure in my life with food, I'm finding all manner of other idols to worship pleasure. I could go on and on and on about the gods that my heart wants to serve and how I have struggled to avoid worshiping those gods. It feels to me oftentimes like it's just a game of whack-a-mole. I share that because I feel like I need to persuade two types of people in the audience today. The first one is somebody who doesn't really see idol worship as a problem in their life because they're not bowing down to a physical wooden idol. Or perhaps it's just that they don't see that there's idols out there that they're worshiping. And I want to discuss now the various types of idols that we worship as modern Papillion Nebraska Christians. But I also want to speak to the opposite person of that, And I want to help that person who's struggling with repenting and removing all these idols from their life. You're not alone. Just because I'm one of the elders of this church and I'm up here delivering this sermon does not mean that I've figured it all out and that I've become perfect. If by God's grace I've figured anything out, it's that I can show you an example of how to throw yourself at the foot of the cross and beg God to sanctify you and redeem you from this heart that is so desperately wicked and evil and tries to draw you away from worshiping him alone. I'm there in the trenches with you as an idol worshiper. I don't stand in judgment over you today over this. What makes idols so hard to identify in our lives and so challenging to find is that often the things that become idols in our lives, they are truly gifts from God. They're truly gifts from God. And see, we take the things that, we, that were meant for us to give us, that were meant to give us joy, and we make them greater than the one who has given them to us to enjoy. And the key to identifying these idols is to understand when our affection for these things has replaced God himself. And our self-righteousness here, our self-righteousness here runs deep. It runs deep. And it is so easy to think that we have just a little bit of a problem and not an idolatry problem. And it's quite possible that some of the common gods that we worship today are money, power, success, pleasure, acceptance. And while, for example, while worshiping the God of money, we often bow down to the idol of our jobs and workaholism to acquire security. While worshiping the God of power, we bow down to the idol of manipulation and deceit of others in order to gain power and control over them. While oftentimes worshiping the God of success, we bow down to whatever it is that we're good at, academics, sports, music, our profession, and so on. While worshiping the God of pleasure, we bow down to the idols of our TVs and our computers to obtain that pleasure. While worshiping the God of acceptance, we bow down to the will and the whims of other people so that they may accept us. And while the Israelites may have worshipped a wooden idol, they believed that it would give them these things that I'm talking about. Those idols, those gods that I just mentioned, those were the objects of their worship too. And today, we bow down to different idols to worship the same gods that they did. So I want to give you three questions right now that you can ask yourself that I think are just good reflection questions, good questions that help you dig into the depth of your soul to see, am I worshiping an idol here? This tricky question that can protect us from this deceitful heart that lies within us. So the first question is, what day are you living for? What day 
are you living for? The second question is, how do you feel when you think about giving up or losing something in your life? How do you feel when you think about giving up or losing something in your life? And the third is, what motivates you to act? What motivates you to act? So the first question, what day are you living for? What is it that you find yourself thinking about all the time? What seems to get all of your attention? What are you praying about the most, perhaps? What do you most hope for? What do the good old days look like to you? I'll give you some examples. I don't intend to bind anyone's conscience on these things. Every person is different. Some of them are from my own life. Some of them are from just observations in general. But I want to help. What day are you living for? What does this perhaps look like? God has definitely given us leisure. He's given us things to enjoy. It's a gift. Let's enjoy that gift. But if you find yourself consumed with work to pay for that next big vacation, to always buy the next better thing, to live for the weekend, then perhaps these idols, perhaps these things have become idols for you to worship that God of pleasure. If you find yourself lusting uncontrollably, unable to be present in the moment and serve those that are in front of you because you just simply can't wait to get back to your computer and click through the images and videos. You're serving a God of pleasure. God encourages us to be wise with money. Please don't understand me. Please don't misunderstand me. He encourages us to save for the day when we will not have plenty. But in a society that is built around retirement and financial independence, we have to ask ourselves, is this because we don't trust the Lord? provide? Retirement can become an idol. Money is a god. My second question was, how do you feel when you think about giving up or losing something in your life? What is it that you most fear in that area? What makes you sad or depressed when you think about not having this thing anymore? A fire that destroys your home and everything in it is, of course, a very terrible thought to consider. But our response to that can reveal how much material things have become the idol that we have begun to worship and to be able to, um, sorry, our, they can be, our response to that can reveal how much material things have become our God and then the idols that we have begun to worship in order to attain and to protect these material things. No one wants to lose a job unexpectedly, but if this is something that terrifies you because you don't know how the bills are going to get paid, if if you're fretting about it all the time and you're working to prevent it, then this perhaps may become your idol of self-reliance and your God is one of independence. My third question was, what motivates you to act? Who is it that you want to please the most? What do you find yourself most passionate about? What do you turn to as a refuge in those moments that you need it? Now, here's where we can start to see habitual sins really take root in our lives. See, we will sin and we will sin and we will sin and we will keep on sinning in order to acquire the thing that we want or to prevent the loss of the thing that we desire. Anything in order to secure the thing that we've started to idolize in our life. Perhaps you find yourself comparing your performance to the performance of others, such as being the better student, the better parent, the better employee. Your performance and perfection can be an idol to worship the God of acceptance to others. You may get angry at your child for not behaving and embarrassing you in public at the grocery store. Your child or the idea of a compliant child can be your idol to serve the God 
of acceptance of others. You work all the time at a job, school, sport, while ignore, ignoring your other God-given responsibilities to family and to serve others. You forsake the assembly on Sunday for these things. It could be that your God is success, that your job, school, or sports are the idol that you use to worship that God. We need to ask ourselves, seriously, what all is this idol worshiping accomplishing for us? Flip over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This is a passage of scripture that has oftentimes shaped a lot of my thinking. It's how I find these, how I work through this particular topic in my own heart. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? I think we need to seriously ask this question at times. So, for example, what does it profit your son, mom and dad, if he's the best football player in the world, he goes to the NFL, makes a lot of money, but doesn't know Jesus? What does it profit your daughter, mom and dad, if she has the best academics, goes to an Ivy League school, gets a PhD, makes tons of money, but doesn't know Jesus? What does it profit you, man, Woman, if you fulfill your lustful desires, but you lose your spouse and you lose your soul, what does it profit you if you're the best person at your job, nationally recognized, but you lose your soul? See, these idols blind us in our pursuit of things that ultimately pull us away from God. And that's what I'm hoping to really persuade you in today is that may we be ever so willing to pray that God would pull us away from idols by force if need be, that he would remove these things that are displacing him in our lives, that may we be ever so willing to pray that God will reveal our idols to us, that God will cause us to desire him and him alone, that God will remove these idols from our life. In this prayer, I encourage you, meditate on Psalm 139. I don't have the time to read the whole verse, but I really do encourage you to take through the entire passage of Psalm 139 and pray that. But in verses 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That can be a terrifying prayer to pray because there are many times I don't want God to reveal to me the answer to that question. But any price is worth paying if it helps turn me back to worshiping God and God alone. And so I want to move on to our final thought now today, and that is that our jealous God desires us to serve him and him alone. So turn with me now to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. 
because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. These verses show us that God in antiquity announced what he was going to do in the future, and then he did those things. Now, why did he do this? Well, it told us in verses 4 and 5, God knew that if he didn't tell us ahead of time what he was going to do, then what we would do is come back and say it was all done because of our hard work, our intelligence, our luck, etc., etc. In other words, our idols. And by laying it down ahead of time, Israel had no choice but to acknowledge that God did these unexpected and sudden events in their lives. And God knows that we are stiff-necked, strong-willed, stubborn people, and that we do not want to see the obvious signs that point to the existence of God and His sovereignty in our lives. Because if we admit to His existence and His sovereignty in our lives, then we must acknowledge His right to rule our lives, and we don't want that. We don't want that. What we want is to rule our own life. But ruling our own life destroys us. It destroys us, and God knows that, and so he jealously desires us to worship him alone, for he knows that that is the only way that will keep us from this destruction. Look at verse 9. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In the end, God is going to act in such a way as to protect us from this idolatry in our lives. How can he possibly allow his name to get associated with these idols? How can he possibly allow his reputation to get tied up with these idols and these false gods that we allow in our life? In verse 9, God defers his anger for the sake of his name. See, God has been having this conversation with Israel about this idol worship for quite some time, <clears throat> and he just simply hasn't acted yet, even though he said he would, he hasn't, and he doesn't because he doesn't want his justice to be seen by the nations around Israel as him being this fickle God like they see their own gods. See, we oftentimes refer to God as holy, the holy one. And what that means is that he is separate, and he's other in essence and character, In other words, he's nothing like the gods that we craft in our heads. God will not allow us to displace our praise for him and his purpose for us with other idols. And in verse 10, we see that God will even allow us to fall into affliction so that we may shed these idols. Now, this this affliction is not some type of vindictive rage, but it is the loving discipline of the Father as it says in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, which is again quoted in Hebrews 5, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, and whom he delights. God will allow us to suffer affliction at times in our life with the goal of revealing our idols to us. He can't just leave us be. He is jealous of his glory and that we ascribe to him alone the glory that is due to him. God will demonstrate this truth to us by destroying all of our spiritual, earthly, political, material, emotional idols. And it's ultimately good for, our, good for us to, um, it's ultimately for our good to help us see that absolute loyalty, to God, absolute loyalty to God is simply the best option. It's the only option. 
Verse 17, he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. If you had just listened to me, God says here. How many times have we said that to our children, perhaps? Oftentimes with the benefit of hindsight. But this is God. He's the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe who created the earth. His commandments are commandments to be heard and obeyed. And again, the jealousy of God comes out here as he wants us to obey. Because then and only then can we have peace. Now, this peace is not an absence of hostility. That's part of it. But it's not just an absence of hostility, which is the way we oftentimes think of that word peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means a general well-being, a well-being of the mind, the body, and the soul. Through obedience to God, these verses are telling us that if we have a peace, that, sorry, through obedience to God, these verses are telling us that we have a peace that is driven by an unending righteousness. Like that river flowing through the woods, that never dries up, like the waves of the sea where the waves just keep coming over and over and over and over and over. They never stop. Living as God intended us to live, not as we want to live, that's what gives us this ultimate peace. How many people seek this kind of peace their whole life through idols and worshiping other gods, and it destroys them? But God is jealous for us to serve him and him alone because he knows that that is the sole way that we can find this peace. So I want to close with just some thoughts from Colossians 3 in the first five verses. I'm out of time, so I won't read them, but I, can, I, I think I can explain it well. It's ultimately in Christ that we can overcome the depths of idolatry that is rooted in our lives. So if first you've not placed your trust in Christ for your soul, and you've not put that into the hands of Jesus who died for your sins and rose again for you that you may have a life of righteousness, then that needs to be the first step in your life. Now, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, then here's what Colossians 3 tells you. You are risen with Christ. You are risen with Him. You've been co-resurrected with Christ. And that now places you into a spiritual union with Christ that works itself out in your day-to-day life. And it does that by our responsibility to keep seeking the things that are above, not on the earth, as it says there in those first five verses of Colossians 3. And that is a command. It's also in the present tense. So what it's telling us is that we have to continuously, every single moment of our life, always set our mind and our affections on things that are above, not things that are on this earth. We should be preoccupied with Christ. That's what it's telling us, to think of things that are above and not on the earth. And so what characterizes Christ and his kingdom as it relates to the many idols and gods that we've discussed today? Money, material things, they're perfectly fine to have. But we need to use those things to serve others and not serve us. We need to take our homes. We need to be hospitable. We need to take our money. We need to be generous. Power, it can be used to serve others, to ensure justice for the weak, to enable others to thrive. There's nothing wrong with having power. But pray that God would teach you 
to serve others rather than be served. Success, if it's been given to you, it should be attributed to our God. But we should also then be content with who God has made us to be. Pray that you would be pleasing to God regardless of your circumstances. Enjoy the life that God has given you, but do it within the boundaries that he's prescribed. And pray that you may look forward to a heaven as the, and pray that you may look forward to heaven as the ultimate fulfillment of the pleasure that you desire. Seek the approval of the Lord and not of other men. Rather than hearing good job from your boss, long to hear well done, a good and faithful servant from the Lord. Now, John, I know I was in the Old Testament a lot today. John closes his first letter with these words. Little children, keep yourself from idols. This is a hard thing for us to do. May we pray that God does that for us in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. God, there's nothing that I can do or say that will make it a reality in anyone's heart. Each of us struggles with this issue of worshiping other gods in unique ways. It is impossible for us to be able to articulate all the different ways that idol worship inflicts upon us and infects our hearts. But God, I know that your spirit is all-knowing. You can know our hearts. You can show these things to us. And I pray for everyone here today. I pray that you would do that in their lives. And I pray that you would grant us the strength and the humility to be able to see that, to be able to lean upon Jesus to save us from these idols, to save us from the sins that we oftentimes will fall into in order to secure these idols in our life. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.